noon on the first Monday of the month so it's book choice on Fine Music Radio coming to you from the Artscape Theatre in Cape Town I'm Cindy Moritz and I'm Mataba Taba. How are you doing Cindy? I'm good thanks and as usual we have a treasure trove of books to share Beverly Roos-Muller explores memory and the discovery of home in Julia Martin's beautifully written memoir The Blackridge House Vanessa Levenstein gets on the line to Evan Ratliff author of The Mastermind, Drugs, Empire, Murder, Revenge, to find out what drove one cyber genius to choose honour over crime. From crime to culture, as Philip Todras turns the spotlight to professional dancer, teacher and choreographer Richard Glassstone and his latest publications. And, and Cindy Wells comes to... What well, comes a chance? Uh, latest publication, Cindy Moritz. Okay, <laughs> let's go on. Okay, so I spoke to Simon Sabag Montefiore, uh, the author of Written in History, which we reviewed here last month, and um, I had the chance to speak to him on the phone after he was here for some of the literary festivals. Bringing the topic, the topical cybercrime theme home, Beryl Eichenberger entered the web's dark underbelly in Peter Church's page-turning thriller Crackerjack, set right here in Cape Town. And Michael Avery spoke to financial journalist TJ Stradom, author of Christo Visser, Risk and Riches, the day after an eventful book launch. Please stay with us for our easy-peasy competition to win one of two copies of the keepsake Written in History, Letters That Changed the World by Simon Sebag Montefiore. Beverly Roos Muller, you were deeply touched by The Blackridge House, a memoir by Julia Martin. An elderly woman is alone in her room, strapped into bed, gradually losing the remains of her interesting mind. And what she longs for most, what we all long for at the end, is a return to what we understand as home which at its deepest level is our most primary identity. Betty's mind is porous, her memoirs and connections spilling into a decreasing reservoir eaten by Alzheimer's. Her daughter, author and academic Dr. Julia Martin, reassures, coping with her mother's horror of the care home, the awful food, the misery of not being home. Julia is home. Why can't she be with Julia? But there seems no way of managing that, and anyone who has cared for an Alzheimer's patient, especially when bedridden, knows it becomes an overwhelming task. Betty has a window which opens a tiny prism into the world she truly loves. Trees, squirrels, pigeons, which the care home hates her feeding, as they make such a mess. But even now in her limited life, she is nurturing, enjoying these simple living things, the little wild creatures, the free birds, the supple green leaves of glimpsed outside world in which she once hiked and climbed and played and swam. As she wrestles with her mother's anguished phone calls, Julia realizes she has no agency over this painful path of no turning back. But there is a place her mother speaks of, an early childhood home in Peter Maritzburg, where she and her friend paddled in a stream and ate sweet golden mangoes in a garden full of trees. 
If only she could find this place, thinks Julia. Perhaps it would bring some comfort to her mother. And she could bring back something living from the place. A fern planted in a clay pot. A tangible connection to the fragments of memory she can still recall. Julia sets off on a quest with her family, not for the first time, to find the Blackridge House. A pretty wooden iron Victorian style home near a railway line, a stream, a tall treed garden, but with little idea of its location. The author has written before of the kind of archaeological journeys which strip layers of the past, which gives us a glimpse of how seamlessly time runs into itself. Her former book, A Millimeter of Dust, was a superb description of the long archaeological history of the Northern Cape. In her current quest for the Blackridge House, Julia once again relies on the help of strangers, and as many of us know from similar experience, there are a great number of extraordinarily kind and generous people in the world who are ready to help when asked, many who go far beyond the extra mile. Her efforts to find her mother's early home do not go smoothly, and as her mother gradually becomes failure, it is clear that this is an expedition of discovery for Julia herself, the uncovering of all that lies beneath, the bones and stones and shards of our shared and often shattered history of joy and displacement, of love and loss. The Blackridge House is written with a fine feeling for the narrative experience, words chosen with care information acutely and sensitively offered. If there is one small quibble, it lies in the lack of directly addressing a deeper problem, the accelerating problem of increased numbers of dementia. Experts suggest that children born today will have a one in three chance of living until they are 100 years old, and society is catastrophically ill-prepared for the issues this poses. But this is not a book about solving humanity's problem. It is of a single grief of an aging parent and the intersecting lives of past and present. It is written with both a poetic sense and a penetrating insight. The cover photograph of Betty as a child is exquisite, well worth reading. Let's get right to our competition then to win one of two copies of Written in History, Letters That Changed the World. To win, simply tell us, who wrote the memoir, The Blackridge House, Julia Martin or Martin Julia? Call us on 021-401-1013. Vanessa Levenstein, you delved into the world of cybercrime with Evan Ratliff, author of The Mastermind, Drugs, Empire, Murder, Revenge. There's an argument that heroes and psychopaths are really two sides of the same coin. They either channel their fearlessness through pro or antisocial behavior. So what drives one cyber genius to become a Silicon Valley wunderkind and another an internet-enabled criminal mastermind? Joining us today on Book Choice on the line from New York is Evan Ratliff, author of The Mastermind, The Hunt for the World's Most Prolific Criminal. Evan, welcome. Thanks for having me. You spent four years chasing the story of ex-South African Paul LaRue. To quote from your book, every chess match has to start with an opening move. What move got you hooked? The first move that got me interested was the U.S. government arresting a man named Joseph Hunter. Uh, His nickname was Rambo. He's an ex-U.S. military soldier who was arrested for 
attempted to kill, arranged the killing of a DE agent overseas. And that sort of initial thread led in a very roundabout way to Paul LaRue, because Joseph Hunter had worked as a mercenary for Paul LaRue. He was a part of Paul LaRue's hit team, and he had committed murders on behalf of Paul LaRue. He had ordered murders on behalf of Paul LaRue. And I started sort of looking into both those murders and trying to figure out who LaRue was and how he became the type of international criminal who, who did hire mercenaries, who did commit crimes all around the world. And that's sort of how I got into the massive criminal empire that was, you know, Paul LaRue's organization. Now, you've seen Paul LaRue in court. You've locked eyes. But you've never had access to an interview. If you were granted an interview, what's the one question you'd ask him? I think I would have a lot of variations on why questions. I mean, I know almost all the facts. I'm sure there are some facts that I don't know over, you know, his life and his criminal adventures, but a lot of the whys of why he did particular things are missing. I mean, for example, the murder that I was particularly interested in was a was of a real estate agent in the Philippines who had supposedly swindled him out of, you know, some thousands of, you know, US dollars maybe tens of thousands of U.S. dollars worth of commission. And he, you know, he was arranging to have people killed for as little as $1,000 that they owed him that he felt had, they had stolen from him. And this is a man who, at his height, was making hundreds of millions of dollars a year in selling prescription drugs in the United States and selling weapons and selling other types of drugs. So really the question I would have for him is, why did he do things the way he did? Not just why did he have people killed, but why such over such trivial matter. That's part of what's sort of left unknown in the story of Paul Lerup. You mentioned he quibbled over $2 for dry cleaning, the incongruity of the man. In many ways, he almost reflects very clearly a kind of CEO of a tech company or a large corporation, multinational corporation, who then you discover they're actually incredibly, you know, flimpy and cheap. And that's sort of part of what drove them to be as big as they are. I feel like there are these contradictions that you also see reflected in people that we view as very, very successful. And he was, in his own way, very, very successful, and he had those same quirks. All of his success just happened to occur on the other side of the law. Which brings me to my next question. He crossed the line. He was successful, and yet he became a brutal cartel boss. Is there any way of knowing if he has any insight into his own behavior? I'm not sure. He's a very smart man, to be sure. I mean, both technically when it comes to computers, both organizationally and sort of building the operation that he had. I've not interviewed him. I've read a lot of chats that he's had back and forth with, you know, his own cousin, for instance, who was part of the organization. And, you know, it's not like he's a person who's incapable of self-reflection or emotion. Mm -hmm. I think to a large extent, he was so driven by what he wanted to achieve in terms of building the organization. And then he got caught up in aspects of running a criminal organization that maybe he never took the time for that reflection. I certainly haven't seen that level of reflection. And and now, in particular, when he's testified in court in the United States, he's shown really zero remorse. And I've seen him every time that he's testified and every question he's ever been asked. And he's never expressed anything close to what seems like genuine remorse. So if he is capable of reflection, it's not clear that he's undertaken that reflection so far. After he was caught, and we've just talked about him in court, it seemed like the authorities were happy to let go of the big fish for a pond of relative tadpoles. As a reader, it was frustrating. Was it frustrating for you to witness this? 
it was frustrating only I mean I was attacking it as a reporter so for me it was it was trying to understand the reasons behind that and then be able to try and lay them out for a reader so essentially what happened was when they arrested Paul LaRue he agreed to cooperate with the USDEA USDEA almost immediately turned him into an asset. They kept him in custody, but they used him to catch the people who had worked for him, who were still out and about in the world and still thought that he was at large in the world. And so there was one side of the sort of U.S. law enforcement, DEA community that was chasing LaRue that believed that this was not the right thing to do, essentially, that they should have prosecuted him in full rather than give him any kind of deal to catch people who were not as important as him in the organization. That said, there are people on the other side who they had reasons for doing it. I mean, he had connections to Iran. He had connections to North Korea. They believed those would be fruitful, but in the end, they weren't very fruitful. They did capture a number of murderers, mercenaries who were killers for hire, who were out there, you know, offering their military skills for money to intimidate and kill people. So they, they sort of point to those arrests also. But it sort of depends on how you come down on what sentence he's going to get. And, he, and Paul has not been sentenced in the United States yet. The Mastermind, it's compelling, frightening, utterly insane story. A highly recommended read. Evan, well done, and really all the best. Thank you so much.
All I ask of you by the Hungarian trio, uh, Cindy, I seem to have been back in focus now. (laughs) What do you have for next? Right. Philip Tadras turns the spotlight onto professional dancer, teacher and choreographer Richard Glastone and his latest books. I spoke to Richard Glaston, well-known choreographer, dancer, teacher, who was in Cape Town recently and in fact spoke about two of his books, Congo to Covent Gardens and David Poole, 1926-1991, A Life Blighted by Apartheid. Both books are by Richard Glaston and was a very interesting conversation. First of all, let's start with his own story about the unlikely story of someone growing up in what was then the Belgian Congo, the product of a Jewish-English immigrant who had arrived there and had worked very hard to set up a business, his son coming to initially boarding school and then coming to Cape Town and getting himself involved with the ballet school at the University of Cape Town. It's such an unlikely story that uh, if it wasn't a biography, one wouldn't quite believe it. But anyway, he does continue to do a very brilliant career in dance, originally as a soloist, then as a choreographer, ultimately as a teacher, and also, I think something that should be mentioned, is his writing as a a correspondent for modern dance and that not only was it done in uh, a foreign language which was Dutch and he was complimented much on that but let's then get back to the whole subject about language because the Congo to Covent Gardens is a story also about his ability to speak so many languages he grew up speaking English French and Flemish and the Flemish helped him ultimately with Dutch and Afrikaans Having spent a long time in Turkey, he did that too. And then so Turkish was added to his repertoire. And in more recently, as he went back to his family roots and started studying Yiddish. So it's a memoir which draws on some 60 years of experience as a professional dancer, teacher and choreographer. And story that takes him first from the Congo to Cape Town. And he talks about the three very important women in his life, which was Dulcie Howes, Hans Snook, who she was involved with the Scalpino Ballet Company in Holland and Nanette de Valois in Turkey and how their practical guidance was so important to him. I think the one thing I must mention, also talking about importance, is he spoke about Rabbi Levy in Elizabethville who for 50 years broadcast the Friday night service over the air to spread that throughout the then Belgian Congo, and how that contributed also to his life in many ways. The story is one, as I say, that takes you from Cape Town, he then goes to London, from London has an opportunity to work in Turkey, where he did extremely well, and also it's the first time he really did some serious choreography, and then his experience with other South African dancers who were in London at the same time and who he continues to have an association with. And one of those people he met was David Poole. So the first book that I mentioned, Congo to Covent Gardens by Richard Glaston, was published by Blurb in 2015. The David Poole book is published more recently. It was last year by Guild Publishing. And A Life Blighted by Apartheid, And he goes into the background of uh, David Poole, who was able to pass for white. Someone, I think, who is more knowledgeable in the world of dance is by Music Radio's very own Sheila Chisholm. And her comment about the book when she reviewed it was she was disappointed because it 
doesn't really deal with the man, David Poole. And that was something that I felt very strongly about as well, and which I spoke to him about. And his comment was, it was just very difficult to get that kind of information, although he did try. So I'm not going to comment too much about the autobiography. It does take you into some of the wonderful work that David Poole did, and subsequent to that, and Dance for All, and his commitment, and a little bit about the politics of the University of Cape Town Ballet School and all of that. So that was an interesting conversation that I did have with Richard Glaston about his two books. Don't forget our easy competition to win one of two copies of Written in History, Letters That Changed the World. Call us on 021-401-1013 and tell us, who wrote The Blackridge House, Julia Martin or Martin Julia? And Cindy, you spoke to Simon Sebeg Montefiore last month when he was in town. Let's hear what he had to say. When last did you receive a handwritten letter? While communication is timeless, the mode of letter writing has transformed to mainly digital bursts of truncated words and even pictures. The art of the meandering missive seems a thing of the past, or is it? Today we speak to historian and author Simon Sebag Montefiore, whose latest publication, Written in History, is a collection of letters that changed the world. We reviewed it last month here on Book Choice, and this month have the author on the line, fresh from the Franschhoek Literary Festival. Welcome, Simon. Hi. Simon, from love letters between Catherine the Great and Prince Potemkin to messages of friendship between Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini, you've collected a range of documents that are a lens to a bygone world. What inspired you to undertake such a task? Um, I think there's nothing as immediate and authentic as a letter. It's a moment in time. It's what Goethe called a spark of life. So I think that letters are a wonderful way both to understand characters and situations and events that we may have forgotten. I mean, this is really a collection of, of letters of, of, as you said, love, hate, war, sex, art, creativity, death, and all of life is here, all of human drama. And, and yet we can glimpse this in an intimate way. Often letters are between two people, but often people are also, letter writers are also writing for posterity too. So there's, there's many levels of letter writing. And it's just a way of really, first of all, just creating a way of seeing history easily, accessibly, openly. This is a book you can dip into and just enjoy if you open it anywhere. It's an entertainment. It's a delicious treasure trove. But it's also a way of learning about events and people that everyone should know. Absolutely. But you weren't always a historian and author. Uh, you found your calling early on. Tell us a bit about that transformation. Well, after university, I was, I was a, actually a banker. In fact, as a, as a teenager, I worked in, in a gold mine in South Africa, in the President's Stain gold mine in Valcombe, bizarrely. And then I went to university. Then I was a banker for a short while, a very bad banker. <laughs> and when the Soviet Union started to break up, I um, became a war correspondent and I wrote about and I covered all the wars in the ex-Soviet Union in Chechnya and Georgia, the Karabakh War, the coup in 1993 in, um, in Moscow and so on. And so I had great adventures there. And when I was almost killed or hurt a couple of times, I decided actually I should write books. And I started to write my Catherine the Great and Potemkin, which was the first of my big history books. That was your first big history book, but some of your work is also described as fiction. 
you say that you never make anything up. So how do you achieve that delicate balance? Ah, well, I mean, I write history books and I write fiction, I write novels. And they're very different things. In the history books, nothing is made up, nothing at all. But in fiction, virtually everything is made up. So they're super different. And my fiction is called the Moscow Trilogy. It's three novels, uh, Sashenka, One Night in Winter, and uh, Red Sky at Noon. And they're set in Stalinist Russia in the middle of the 20th century. And they're really love stories. They're stories about love and death uh, in an intimate family in, in 20th century Russia. Oftentimes, like in Sashenka, a mother has an unbearable choice between saving herself and saving her children. She has a forbidden love affair that throws her whole life to, into jeopardy. And so, yes, I, I also write fiction, and I love writing novels. And those three novels, the trilogy, are really my favorite books of all. So you obviously do a lot of research to get that truth, both in your nonfiction and your fiction. Tell us a bit about how you carry out your research. If I'm doing a, um, a book of original research, like I mean, I've written Stalin, The Cause of the Red Tsar, Young Stalin, and the Romanov most recently, and Catherine the Great, of course. Then I work in archives, and I spend many, many months working in there, looking for new documents and finding them. And that's very exciting. That's a special sort of work. And then I spend a year writing the book. I think writing is as important as researching, and I really write all these books to be as accessible to anyone. You don't have to be an expert. You don't have to know anything about Russia, or, or in the case of Jerusalem, the biography, which is another one of my... Uh, history books. You don't have to. You don't have to know the, the history of the Middle East or the Arabs or the Jews. You can. You can hopefully read it. And I sweat blood to make the book. I hope beautifully written and, and accessible to anyone. And I think you achieve that. But Simon, what was the hardest book you've ever written? Jerusalem is the hardest book I've ever written because the history in Jerusalem matters so much. Um, people are killed for the history of Jerusalem every, every week. You can read about it in the papers. You can see the riots on the Temple Mount and in the streets of Jerusalem now. You can see the, the strife as Trump recognizes Israeli Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, for example, and so on. So the history of Jerusalem is totally alive and totally current and, and literally to die for. So uh, when I was writing that book, it was the biggest challenge. There was no biography. There was no history of Jerusalem in the way that I've written it. And I really wanted to do, um, achieve a really neutral, as neutral as you can be, version of, of Jerusalem's history. It's not just the history of Jerusalem. It's the history of the Middle East through Jerusalem. And it's the greatest story ever told. It's an amazing story. And I hope it's entertaining. But it's also there it, within it are the key, are the keys to peace in the Middle East, which is that each side must recognize the narrative, the history of the other. Absolutely, Simon, and I do hope many, many more people will read that book. Getting back to the current Written in History publication, uh, in it you've strongly suggested that letter writing is having a comeback. Can you elaborate on that? Yes. Well, I think think we used to think in the 90s and the early 2000s and uh, 21st century that, that we were very secure in writing letters on SMS and text and email. But now we've realized, of course, that these things are far from secure. Anyone can break into these supposedly secure, supposedly secure forums, if you like. And you know, all our data is being stolen by huge companies. Security services are looking into it, and anyone can hire a detective to steal your email. So actually, there's something to be said for a, for a letter or a note 
where only the only one copy exists and only copy one copy can really exist. So starts with security services and government. They're all starting to write things down again rather than depending on WhatsApp or or email. And I think it will spread and actually letter writing will have a comeback. Just as books as just as books themselves have recovered from from digital Kindles and so on. I think I think the letter will recover somehow. Well, that sounds like good news. Simon Sabag Montefiore, thank you for your time and for giving us extra insight into those letters that changed the world. Written in history is surely a timeless treasure. We wish you well on your continued South African tour and hope to welcome you back to these shores soon. Yes, I'd love to come back. I love it here. Thank you so much. What a day this has been What a rare mood I'm in Well, it's almost like being in love There's a smile on my face For the whole human race Well, it's almost like being in love All the music of life seems to be Like a bell that is ringing for me And from the way that I feel When that bell starts to peel I could swear I was falling Swear I was falling It's almost like being in love like being in love Thank you Rick for that one that was Kevin Minter almost like being in love and uh, Cindy I smell some coffee World famous Truth Coffee presents Truth After Dark This is a brand new late-night dessert-only dining experience. Orchestrated by the Paris-born Michelin star pastry chef Kamal, you can enjoy a taste symphony delivered through a selection of aesthetic desserts, all paired with Truth Coffee, Roasting's artisanal coffees. Truth After Dark is at the Truth Coffee in Batonkan Street, Tuesdays to Saturdays from 6pm to midnight. 
Bookings are essential. Book online at truthcoffee.com or message them on Facebook. Escape to Truth After Dark. Daryl Eichenberger, you discovered the web's dark underbelly in Peter Church's Crackerjack, set here in Cape Town. South African novelist Peter Church uses his home city of Cape Town as a setting for this new novel. And it is a delight to recognize places, and maybe some people, within this boundary. With cybercrime a constant threat in our technology-driven world, Church uses this as the pivot of this page-turning thriller. As a technophobe with little knowledge of the deep, dark underbelly of the web, I was a little sceptical about whether I would see this through. But Church's engaging writing, fast pace and clever characters had me enthralled, and I came away from the book gasping a little with the breadth and strength of how very vulnerable we all are to hacking. The web is truly well named, as the threads of the story are bound together like a massive spider's web to produce a cracker of a novel that engulfs you with its twists, turns and weaves. It's a deep, dark world in the heart of the web, and hackers play an intricate game to get to their victims. Add to that the very real criminal element, and Crackerjack brings together the virtual and the real world in a hugely believable and sometimes frightening way. Worlds collide and merge as the good and the bad vie for supremacy, and Church uses his IT experience to create a plot that is exacting and revealing. Meet the bright and sexy Carla Vitali, an engineer hand-picked to run Supertech, Africa's leading independent engineering firm. Her dream is shattered when her boss and mentor Niall Townley disappears and his luxury vehicle is found in a crevice at the bottom of Chapman's Peak. With US dollars 20 million missing from the Supertech overseas accounts, the knives are out to discover who, where, what, and when. After three months with no body recovered, the police investigation has hit a wall and a desperate Carla seeks the help of software hacker turned day trader Daniel Lefleur. Now living a below-the-radar life in Bantry Bay, his solitary life revolves around his trading and painting with a particular bent towards Van Gogh. Readers will enjoy these references and inferences. It is a story of the hunters and the hunted, and Lefleur is also a target. Add to this a friendship with a homeless man who looks out for him, an ex-criminal with a surprising persona, and already the characters are intriguing. From the charmed world of Bantry Bay, soothing views of the sea and the elegance of painting, to the hot, sealy belly of strip clubs, ex-criminals, revenge and sex, the dark, bottomless world of the web is cleverly exposed. Throughout the novel, we guess whether this character or that is to be trusted to what could possibly happen next to a fairly satisfying conclusion. I say fairly, as there are still some loose ends, not so loose that they detract, which no doubt Church will use in a subsequent thriller. I liked the characters of Lefleur and Vitali and hope they have a life beyond this novel. Church's use of technology makes this a very 21st century tale that I enjoyed thoroughly 
and would recommend for book club reads or simply a weekend where you just wanted to chill. Gripping, never boring, Crackerjack is exactly that. Smoke gets in your eyes, that one by uh, Abby Lou. Michael Avery spoke to financial journalist TJ Stradom after the Cape Town launch of his book, Christo Visser, Risk and Riches. We bring you that interview. Well, to some, the name Christo Visa conjures images of one of the country's finest ever deal makers, a, a businessman with a, a flair for the political and who also had a nose for a dripping roast. For others uh, who remember the likes of Tollgate and uh, That Suitcase and more recently Steinoff, the lingering concerns are, are not enough to assuage uh, some doubts. In any event, Visa's dominance of business in South Africa over the last five decades certainly makes for a fascinating read and it was crisply written by financial journalist TJ Stradom in Christo Visser, Risk and Riches, uh, and TJ is in the Fine Music Radio Studio. Hi TJ, how are you doing? 
Hello, Michael. I'm doing well. Thanks, man. I'm sure there are many lining up to write uh, Chris Ovisa's authorized bio. This is a, a so-called unauthorized bio, but you did try. Can you just share how that meeting went when you asked to write it? Yeah, I went to see him in his office in Paro, and he um, he gave me 90 minutes. We spoke at great length about a, a lot of things. He told a lot of stories, and in the end, I um, I had to send him a proposal of what I have in mind, and. Uh, after that, we didn't really talk much again. He gave us a lot of perspective on some of the stories that are in the book and uh, also some of the current uh, issues that there, uh, that there are about, well, about Steinhoff and, and, and the ongoing questions about what happened between mm. him and Uister and what happened between Uister and Steinhoff uh, and, and so forth. And I suppose that still has many scratching their heads. How does a businessman, the caliber of Christo Visa, as I said, and as you articulate in your book uh, uh, quite uh, adroitly, uh, for the last five decades, stitching deals together and uh, really building this empire, how does he not spot the warning signs? Uh, the fact that Yusta, uh, from a character perspective, it only emerged uh, perhaps after the fact, according to some, that he was having an extramarital affair, that uh, he was uh, one who was prone to go to the races. He's, I mean, all of those seem to be warning signs uh, that that Visa missed from a character perspective, but uh, he professes still uh, his innocence. He claims he didn't know about the extramarital affair, but I mean, there are lots of successful guys that, uh, <laughs> that step over the line. So, I mean, if, if it's your own ethos, then yes, that makes sense. But he says it's incredibly difficult to detect fraud. And Visa's argument was... He was the chairman of Steinhoff for 18 months, and uh, he didn't see anything at that time or during that period. And he says afterwards, seven partners and 100, uh, 100 employees of PwC took 18 months to compile the report that's now sitting with Steinhoff, the 3,000 page with the mm. 10,000 pages of addenda. So with the, 73, with the 73 mentions of, of, of Christo Visa and related yeah. party transactions. And exactly. he did meet Marcus Eusta several years before that. I mean, he's known him for an awful long time. Yes, since, well, since, uh, since Visa's early 40s, auditing one of Visa's companies in, the, in the, I think, 1982 was, one of, was Marcus Eusta's first uh, job as a, as a clerk. So, yes, they, they've known each other for a long time, and, and there's quite a lot of, you know, a lot of history between them, uh, especially from the 21st century, so sort of around, you know, 2007, 2009, there were rumors that ShopRite might be swallowed by Steinhoff. Uh, so, and, and then it intensified after that. But I think an, an important thing, and, and this maybe is not, is not something that's spoken about often at the moment, but I think the deal that Visa got in Steinhoff was too good to pass by. The premium they paid for his Pepco, for, for his Pepco shares was massive and and uh, Michael you would have seen in the book so the last time that that Brett actually yeah, the, broke well, down yeah when, when the last time Brett 16 and said, a half billion to 63 billion I mean, <laughs> exactly so so I mean Brett also notoriously undervalued pep according to analysts at the time but still so that's what's on paper it was a and cheeky it was a cheeky deal before trevor manuel stepped in and said no 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 uh, they're going to change the stc regime and slapped another three rand uh, tax uh, bill onto it so yes th that was the that was the shoprite deal that was on the table in 2007 when they wanted to buy shoprite out and can you imagine if shoprite was bought out and it was oh, it was something like 25 rand a share shoprite peaked at 250 rand a share <laughs> 
<laughs> last year. So, I mean, that would have been the deal of the century. Yet another deal of the century. Yet yeah. another. But, and, and that's the long and the short of it. I know one asset manager once rather unkindly and perhaps a little simplistically said that um, uh, Visa wasn't the shrewd investor we all thought he was because he built Pep with his dad's money and von, uh, Rainer von Royen's vision. And mm-hmm. it may have a little kernel of truth. But let's face it, Christo Visa did have an eye for very clever tax structure in, in, in particular and an eye for a good deal and it's something he honed uh, throughout his uh, uh, deal making career in fact uh, you relay a story of how he paid 1.2 million rand for a, a Bantry Bay mansion I need to sell it for more than double that three years later but I think perhaps his most famous deal was picking up OK bazaars for one rand from SAB tell me about that so a very interesting. I mean, obviously in the in the middle '90s, SAB was going for this global strategy. They wanted to be a global brewer, but because of the isolation of the apartheid years, they they had become this conglomerate. So they owned lots of lots of assets that that wasn't really related to hops and uh, OK bazaars, Edgars. That was part of it, and. Um, Eventually, they tried to turn OK Bazaars around because the 80s was a terrible time for OK Bazaars. And by the early 90s, they'd gone through so many different approaches and trying to turn the business around. And by 96, 97, they were making a loss of a million rand per business day. And, I mean, that was a lot of money back then. And uh, up steps Whitey Basson and Chris Visa, and they uh, cut a deal for, cut a check for one rand. Now, obviously, you take over... You take over the assets that there is, but all the liabilities as well. Exactly. From day one, you have to make sure every single day that passes, you're losing a million rand. At that stage, that was, I think that was more than twice what the profit of ShopRite was at the time. So it was a very difficult thing to absorb, obviously. So that's the deal. That's probably the deal of the last century. But the reason it's it's that deal is because they then managed to turn it around within nine months. And, and I mean, Whitey Basson probably needs the credit for that because operationally he was he was involved. But I think Kistu's eye for the deal must have been involved in keeping the keeping the check as low as one. And and you you do mention that uh, you were playing around with Dikansvater for the Afrikaans version of the book as the title, the you know the risk taker, and that that really yes. for for me defined Christo Visa, and not just an uncalculated risk. He wasn't a gambler, but when very often when people were fleeing the country, worried about the political turmoil and upheaval, he saw opportunity. Yes, and he stepped in and he and he put his money behind it, or at least he borrowed money to to <laughs> then to then put into it. And yeah, interestingly enough, I spoke to someone this morning, which I mean, apparently that's it's a saying. Uh, so Kurt so is also quite aggressive when it comes to to making deals, and uh, uh, apparently there's a saying that uh, the softest part of Christovisa is his teeth. <laughs> so that was something that I unfortunately did not include in the book, uh, and I can't say it's a fact. But uh, so allegedly, the softest part of Christovic is his teeth. TJ, the million rand question right now: Do you think he knew what was going on at Steinoff? So I don't think he did. But this is this is looking at patterns over over decades and some of the interviews that I that I had. So, but funnily enough. If you're in a room full of people, lots of other people think he must have, and in the journal, journalist, uh, journalistic community, plenty. So, um, but f- for me, and, and this is a point he made, if you know there's fraud, why would you put your money into it? Because you know you'll be throwing it away. My argument is more that there were other things that drove him into the sign of uh, transaction and into investing his money there, 
and probably offshoring some of his assets because mm. he's very South Africa um, exposed. And, and remember when this was, this was 2014, 2015, we were just beginning to see all the machinations of yeah. of state capture. And white and monopoly capital and all and of those things. Exactly. Like, no, yeah, exactly. Hard to argue against that. TJ, unfortunately, we have run out of time. Really enjoyed the book, uh, Risks and Riches, uh, the Christo Visa, unauthorized biography by TJ Stradom.
Promenade uh, Thomas Reiner on piano and before that Hi Lily Hi Low by Eve Boswell Before we wrap up today's book choice we would like to pay tribute to the remarkable and wonderful Gory Bose Taylor who steered this bookish ship for two memorable decades A message to Gory from some of her dedicated and loyal reviewers A toast to Gory's wonderfully wicked wit and passion for using the spoken word to promote the written word, which he did so enthusiastically and elegantly through book choice. Dearest Gory, we've known each other for <clears throat> 50 years, so I'm in a rare position to tell our Fine Music Radio listeners about your professionalism, your dedication, your reliability, your love of books, your cheeky sense of humor, even in bleak moments. You're leaving book choices a loss, but let's view it as just another temporary halt on the road of our lives together, and we shall walk on into whatever lies ahead. It's been a privilege. Lots of love. Beverly Wurzmuller. The famous voice is one of authority, but also mostly of enthusiasm. Getting listeners to go out and get the books, to read, to love. For any reviewer, there is no better boss than the one that lights the fire. Thanks to Gori for your support and his passion. Love, Melvin. Gori, thank you for the books, the mentorship, the friendship and the love. And wishing you many more exciting new chapters with lots of love from Vanessa. I love working with Gori. Her keen intelligence, sharp wit, always encouraging, always appreciative. Dearest Gori, or should I say hello my lovely, because that's always how you greet us. What a privilege to have worked with you both in the media industry in the good old days of the Argus, when you were woman's editor for the Cape Times and then working on the Argus. We've had such fun together and it's been a wonderful journey. I wish you lots and lots of love and luck in whatever you're going to do in the future. And I just see this as a chapter closing and you're entering another chapter. So thank you, thank you for all the privileges and for the opportunities that you have given all of us. It's been for me a real pleasure to work with Gori on Fine Music Radio Book Review once a month because she, like me, loves books. My house is full of books. I don't know where to put them. But when I went to her house, Wow, that's quite something else. She's got books everywhere, stacked up on the floor, and it is wonderful to see. The other thing we shared in common was a love of what I call fermented vitamin C, which is a good glass of wine. And we always said the best way to stay young and healthy and active is to drink wine. We share that as well, Gori. So once again, many thanks for the wonderful program you did, and I look forward to seeing more of you in the future. I think it's clear that it was a privilege for us all. And, Gori, you are so well-loved and you'll be missed here on Book Choice. And that brings this month's show to a close. Today's lucky competition winners are Carol Hinbest and Howard Rubin. It's matinee up next with Brendan Van Rain. And thank you to the ever-fabulous team, Rick Everett, Mawandi Lobi and Matabataba Radebi. From me, Cindy Moritz, it's goodbye and good reading. FMR.